Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. In the past year, multiple medications have been evaluated for COVID-19 treatment. Remdesivir, an antiviral that showed promise in SARS-CoV-2 infections, was approved by the FDA in late 2020 with the hope that it would help mitigate the devastating consequences of the coronavirus pandemic. Today, Dr. Jennifer Adama is going viral by providing a review of data behind remdesivir's use and describing the ideal patient population who may benefit. In the United States, one year ago today, we were confirming our third, fourth, and fifth cases of SARS-CoV-2 in the country. It's no secret that our lives have drastically changed over the last year, and especially as healthcare providers, we've been bombarded with an incredible amount of research performed and data published in the last year that it's nearly impossible to keep up with, especially if we're not working with patients with COVID-19 on a daily basis. My goal for this presentation are to dig into some of the data surrounding the use of remdesivir in patients with COVID-19, an agent that we've used since nearly the beginning of this viral pandemic. My goal for this presentation are for you to be able to describe remdesivir's mechanism of action against SARS-CoV-2, to identify an optimal adult patient population for remdesivir's use, and then finally, to outline some future directions for remdesivir in COVID-19 treatment. Now, this graph shows roughly the number of hospitalized patients at that time in the United States with COVID-19. We've had some peaks and some dips, but seen in the last few months a steady increase in the number of hospitalized patients. I'd like to point out some of the landmarks of remdesivir's use along this curve. So first, starting out in May, uh, the emergency use authorization approval on May 1st for remdesivir's use. Later on in May, we had the publication of the first randomized controlled trial evaluating remdesivir's use. In October, the FDA approved remdesivir for COVID-19. In November, we had the publication of the ACT-1 trial. This is one of the major trials that's been shaping the recommendations surrounding remdesivir's use. And then following in December, we had interim results published of the Solidarity Trial, another trial that has been shaping remdesivir's use. Before I dig into all of this literature and data that we have available to us from the past year, I'd first like to start out going through how remdesivir it exhibits its mechanism of action against SARS-CoV-2 and where it impacts the life cycle. Looking at this depiction, on the right-hand side, we have an alveolar cell that's present in our lungs, a nice, happy, healthy alveolar cell. And on the left-hand side, we have a SARS-CoV-2 virus. The virus interacts with our alveolar cell via the ACE2 receptor located in the membrane of our alveolar cell. And this interaction is done via some surface proteins on the virus. The virus is brought into the cell and is uncoated, which allows its genome to enter the cytoplasm. At this point, host ribosomes then can then attach to this positive single-stranded RNA that's been released by the virus. And the ribosomes are able to translate a protein molecule, 
which is shaped and formed to make an RNA polymerase. This RNA polymerase then goes to transcribe this positive single-stranded RNA and make other small RNA molecules that then are, again, translated by host ribosomes on the endoplasmic reticulum to form other viral proteins that are necessary for viral replication. These proteins and genomes can then be packaged up in the host Golgi apparatus to form a new viral particle ready to be released and impact other alveolar cells. Unfortunately, in this process, there is some damage that does occur to the alveolar cell, which leads to some of the inflammatory pathways we see in the disease progression. Where remdesivir comes into play, it impacts this RNA polymerase and halts the RNA transcription by this RNA polymerase. Specifically, it is a nucleotide analog that comes in and inhibits that RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. Some adverse effects that we've seen with its use are transaminase elevations as well as gastrointestinal symptoms. It's also in IV medication, so it's possible to see some infusion reactions as well. For drug-drug interactions, this area has not been completely elucidated for remdesivir yet with its use. However, given its metabolic pathways through CYP450 and P-glycoprotein, it's recommended to an avoid concomitant administration with strong CYP450 or PGP inducers, as this may drive down concentrations of remdesivir. There's also an interaction that's been noted with chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine decreasing the effects of remdesivir, so it's recommended to avoid concomitant use with these agents as well. This brings me to my first assessment question, which is which of the following viral replication processes does remdesivir inhibit? A, RNA transcription, B, RNA translation, C, protein transcription, or D, protein translation. At this time, if you want to go to pollev.com slash mayorx to respond, you can also text mayorx, all caps, to 22333, or use the Poll Everywhere app. All right, as answers come in, I'll go ahead and go through these. Now, I'm sure you are all taken back to your cell biology course and know exactly the difference between transcription and translation. However, in case you did not remember that, translation is the process of forming a protein molecule, and transcription is the process of forming an RNA strand. So that narrows down options to either RNA transcription or protein translation. Like I mentioned previously, remdesivir exhibits its acts on the RNA polymerase and prevents the transcription of new RNA molecules, so that would be the correct answer. There is no impact on protein translation except for any sub subsequent translation that would occur in the viral process. I'd like to now go through some of those trials I was mentioning earlier and the clinical efficacy data that we have surrounding remdesivir. I will be going through these trials in the order that they were published in a linear fashion. First, starting with the first randomized control trial that we have for remdesivir's use. This was conducted by Wang and colleagues out of 10 sites in Wuhan, China, and it was published in May of last year. They included patients who had pneumonia, an oxygen saturation of less than 94% on room air, and who had presented within 12 days of symptom onset. Patients were randomized in a two-to-one fashion to either receive remdesivir, a 200-milligram loading dose, followed by 100 milligrams daily on days 2 through 10, or matching placebo. 
The primary outcome evaluated was time to clinical improvement within 28 days, and this was done so on an ordinal scale assessing severity. This is the severity score that they used. So uh, categorized patients from one to six, one being our least severe category of patients are ready to be discharged, or six being our most severe category that the patient had passed away. Their primary endpoint, again, was clinical improvement shown on this score, and that was defined as a two-point reduction depending on where their baseline was. About 230 patients were recruited from February to March of last year before the trial was terminated early, the authors noted due to outbreak control in Wuhan, China at the time, as well as the trial meeting pre-specified termination criteria. The average age of patients was mid-60s, and a majority of patients being male. 71% of patients had a comorbidity, most commonly being hypertension or diabetes. And I would like to point out the baseline oxygen requirements of the patients included. A majority of patients, about 82-83% of patients requiring low-flow oxygen at baseline, while the next highest group being those requiring high-flow oxygen. For outcome results, there was no difference seen in the primary outcome of clinical improvement on day 28. There were also no differences noted between remdesivir and placebo in any of the secondary outcomes, those being time to clinical improvement, mortality at day 28, or duration of hospitalization. There were also no appreciable significant differences in adverse effects between the two groups. So all in all, not super promising data with remdesivir in this trial. Some strengths is that it is the first randomized controlled trial that was conducted for remdesivir's use in COVID-19. It's quite admirable that the investigators were able to conduct a randomized controlled trial so quickly in the middle of a pandemic. They also used an ordinal scale for symptom assessment, so we are able to assess if a patient had improved from their baseline. Some limitations, however, is that the study was underpowered, having to be terminated early. So this limits our ability to even be able to detect a difference between the two groups. And remdesivir was initiated late in disease progression. Over half of patients receiving remdesivir after 10 days after symptom onset. In conclusion, this trial showed that remdesivir was well tolerated with no um, glaring adverse effects that we saw from its use. However, there was a lack of clinical benefit seen with its use as well. Moving on to the ACT-1 trial, this was published six months following the trial by Wang and colleagues in November of last year. Patients were included if they were hospitalized adults who were PCR positive and had infiltrates on imaging or an oxygen requirement at baseline. They also needed to have a GFR of greater than 30. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to receive either remdesivir, the same dosing as seen before, so that 200 milligram loading dose followed by 100 milligrams on the remaining nine days, or matching placebo. The primary outcome assessed was time to recovery, and this again was assessed using an ordinal scale for severity. The scale looked slightly different from previously, but one still being our least severe patients, those not hospitalized and no limitations of activity, and then eight being our most severe that the patient had passed away. Now I'll remind you that the primary outpoint was time to clinical recovery, and that was defined as a one, two, or three on this scale. So the patients were not hospitalized, either with or without limitations of activities, 
or they were hospitalized but no longer requiring ongoing care. About 1,000 patients were recruited from February to April of last year, very similar average age and male percentage as seen previously. Out of the 60 trial sites, they did have 45 of them that were contained here in the United States. I would like to point out baseline oxygen requirements in this study. So majority of patients requiring supplemental oxygen, about 40% of patients. And the next highest group being those requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO at baseline with about 25% of patients included. Overall, there was a significant difference seen in the primary outcome of time to recovery between remdesivir and placebo, with 10 days versus 15 days in the remdesivir and placebo groups, respectively. When the primary outcome of time to recovery was stratified by oxygen requirements at baseline, there was also a significant benefit seen in the patients who were requiring supplemental oxygen at baseline. For other secondary outcomes, in all groups included, there was no difference seen in mortality. However, again, pulling out that group requiring supplemental oxygen at baseline, there was a mortality benefit seen with remdesivir. There were also benefits seen with remdesivir in improvement of one or two categories on that ordinal scale, as well as duration of hospitalization and duration of oxygen supplementation. In general, much more promising results with remdesivir in this trial. Some strengths is that it is a more generalizable patient population with many of the sites being in the United States. And they also stratified patients by disease severity when reporting results. This allowed us to see if there were certain patient populations who may benefit more so than others with remdesivir's use. Some limitations, however, are that the overall results were driven by the score five patients, those requiring supplemental oxygen at baseline and other experimental drug use prior to enrollment was allowed in this trial, which could confound the results. In conclusion, the ACT-1 trial showed that remdesivir is superior to placebo in reducing time to recovery of COVID-19. This brings me to the last trial that I'll go through evaluating the clinical efficacy data surrounding remdesivir's use. This is the SOLIDARITY trial. The interim results were published last December. Patients were included, they were hospitalized adults who had a diagnosis of COVID-19 and who did not have a previous receipt of any trial medication. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion, again, to receive remdesivir, the exact same dosing seen previously, compared with standard of care. However, these authors strayed a little from the normal and for their primary outcome, they evaluated in hospital mortality. Now, the SOLIDARITY trial is also an adaptive study design, and what this means is that there are pre-specified interim analysis points in the trial protocol that are pre-specified, as well as pre-specified modifications that can occur to the protocol as well. This can be beneficial in disease states or medications where there's not a lot known about them or more information is coming out about them during the trial um, recruitment period. And so you can see why this would work well for a trial evaluating a medication's use in COVID-19. There are, however, some downfalls with using an adaptive study design. Um, the statistics are much more complicated than a traditional study, and with the frequent interim analyses, there can be, if not corrected properly, there can be an increased risk for a type 1 statistical error. 
And generally, there's a standard of care that in all of the arms are unblinded, which can introduce bias to the results. So getting back to the solidarity trial, there were five original arms evaluated, remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, ritonavir, interferon beta, and then standard of care. I will be focusing on the remdesivir and the standard of care arms for the purposes of this presentation. Over 5,000 patients were recruited between March and October of last year, very similar age and male percentage seen previously in trials. When looking at baseline oxygen requirements, two-thirds of patients requiring either low-flow or high-flow oxygen at baseline. For the primary outcome of in-hospital mortality, there was no difference seen between remdesivir and placebo. There were also no differences seen between remdesivir and standard of care in secondary outcomes, including mortality either with or without mechanical ventilation, initiation of ventilation, or the composite mortality and ventilation. So all in all, not a great benefit seen with remdesivir in the solidarity trial results. Some strengths of the study is that mortality was assessed as the primary outcome, which is more clinically significant than time to improvement on a severity score. It also has the largest sample size that we've seen in a randomized controlled trial evaluating remdesivir. However, some limitations, like I mentioned previously, it was an open label study design which could introduce bias. And there's also heterogeneity of the standard of care arm between all of the different trial sites. So in general, not as controlled of a population as we saw in Act 1 or the trial by Wang and colleagues. In conclusion, in solidarity trial, remdesivir did not reduce mortality, initiation of ventilation, or hospital duration. These are very different results than what we saw in Act 1 and much less promising than what we had seen previously. So I'd like to compare these two trials since these are really the two that are shaping our recommendation for remdesivir's use in clinical practice. Act 1 being much smaller with about 1,000 patients included and solidarity having 5,400 patients. The primary endpoint for Act 1 being time to recovery versus mortalities evaluated in solidarity. And then Act 1 did show a faster time to recovery with remdesivir, however, no mortality benefit was shown in solidarity. So as you can imagine, it can be very difficult to pull a recommendation from this data that we have that seems to be somewhat conflicting. And these two trials have been incredibly polarizing in the medical community on what we should be doing with remdesivir's therapy. This polarization is made even more apparent when looking at the recommendations set forth by some of our guiding bodies. The WHO is re recommending against the use of remdesivir. IDSA is recommending remdesivir's use in hospitalized patients with severe COVID-19. Severe defined as an oxygen saturation of less than 94% on room air or requiring supplemental oxygen, ECMO, or mechanical ventilation. And then the NIH recommending remdesivir's use in hospitalized patients who require supplemental oxygen, however, not in patients who require mechanical ventilation. When seeing where these recommendations are coming from, looking at WHO really citing the solidarity trial results showing a lack of mortality benefit with remdesivir's use. IDSA, looking at the ACT-1 criteria, specifically how patients were included, so those patients with severe COVID-19 who are hospitalized. 
recognizing that there was a benefit shown in the Act 1 trial. However, that benefit might be in particular patient populations, such as those requiring supplemental oxygen, but not so much of a benefit seen in patients who would require mechanical ventilation. Taking all of this data into mind and these recommendations that are set forth, it can be very tricky now to move forward and to uh, determine how to apply this information to clinical practice and practically what that would look like. Before I get into those recommendations, I'd like to first move into my second assessment questions, which is which of the following can be concluded from the clinical studies evaluating remdesivir's use? A, the greatest benefit has been shown in patients requiring no oxygen at baseline. B, no mortality benefit has been shown in any patient populations. C, time to clinical recovery may be shorter with the use of remdesivir. Or D, the greatest clinical benefit has been shown in patients mechanically ventilated at baseline. Okay, as answers continue to come in, really this question is getting at looking at the inclusion criteria for the trials and looking at the data that was reported in certain patient populations. So A, the greatest benefit has been shown in patients requiring no oxygen at baseline. If you recall back to the ACT-1 trial, they did stratify patients by oxygen requirement at baseline, showing the greatest benefit in patients requiring supplemental oxygen at baseline. So this would be incorrect. B, no mortality benefit has been shown in any patient populations. While there was no mortality benefit shown from the solidarity trial results, there was a benefit shown again in that patient population requiring supplemental oxygen at baseline and mortality benefits shown in the ACT-1 trial. So that answer would be incorrect. C, time to clinical recovery may be shorter with the use of remdesivir. This is correct. This goes back to the ACT-1 primary outcome showing a decreased time to clinical recovery of 10 days in the remdesivir group versus 15 days in the placebo arm. And then D, the greatest benefit has been shown in patients mechanically ventilated at baseline. This is incorrect, again, going back to that benefit shown in patients with supplemental oxygen. Okay, like I mentioned previously, it can be very tricky to apply this information to particular patients. And so I've pulled here the current ASMAO expert recommendations as of January 25th. And they're recommending use of remdesivir in hospitalized adults with, who test positive for COVID-19 with pulmonary disease. And that is defined as a respiratory rate of greater than 30, an oxygen saturation of less than 93% on room air, or pneumonia by chest x-ray. The dosing recommended currently is the same as what was studied in clinical trials, so that 200 milligram loading dose followed by 100 milligrams thereafter. However, duration has been a question mark since using remdesivir. In the clinical trials, there was a 10-day treatment course that was set out in trials. However, patients did stop remdesivir therapy if they were discharged, so not all patients did receive a full 10-day course. This begs to question if we need to have patients here for the full 10-day treatment course or if we can get away with a shorter course. This is the exact question that Goldman and colleagues set out to try to answer. So in November of last year, we had the publication of this trial evaluating remdesivir for either five or 10 days in patients with severe COVID-19. Patients were included if they were 12 years of age with PCR-confirmed disease. 
They also needed to have radiographic evidence and an oxygen saturation of less than 94% or receiving supplemental oxygen. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to receive either five or 10 days of remdesivir, both groups receiving that loading dose and then either four or nine days of 100 milligrams daily. The primary outcome assessed was clinical status assessed at day 14, and this was assessed on an ordinal scale so very similar to what was seen previously. However, Goldman and colleagues wanted to switch things up, and one was the most severe category that the patient had passed away, and seven being patient had, was not hospitalized. The primary outcome was not a change on this score or looking at baseline on this score. However, it was looking at a snapshot of patients on this score, what percentage of patients fell in each category on day 14. While 397 patients were enrolled in this trial, there were 400 needed to meet power, so they almost got there. Very similar age and male percentage seen previously. However, looking at clinical status and oxygen requirement at baseline, there were significant differences between the five-day and the 10-day treatment arms. The more severe patients following into that 10-day treatment arm, so those requiring mechanical ventilation or high-flow oxygen, and then less severe patients falling into the five-day treatment arm more so with low-flow oxygen and no supplemental oxygen. For the primary outcome of clinical status at day 14, there was not a statistically significant difference between the two groups. And there were also no differences seen in any of the secondary outcomes either, those being time to clinical recovery or time, time to clinical improvement or time to recovery. So in general, no differences seen in five days of remdesivir versus 10. Some strengths of the study is that they did target a patient population to receive a shorter course. So in their protocol criteria, they did exclude patients who were mechanically ventilated or on ECMO at baseline. And then they also used an ordinal scale to assess disease severity. As we know, remdesivir doesn't have, hasn't shown a lot of promising data with mortality benefit. However, we did see the benefit of um, improvement on an ordinal scale with the ACT-1 trial. So this was um, an appropriate primary outcome to evaluate. Some limitations is that there is that imbalance in disease severity at baseline between the two arms. And so this would make me a little more hesitant to apply this information to our more severe patients. The trial was also underpowered. So again, this limits our ability to be able to detect a difference between the two groups. In general, there was no significant difference in this trial in efficacy between five or 10 day courses of remdesivir. So at this time, it's recommended to use a five-day treatment duration. However, this does come with a caveat in keeping in mind which patients weren't well represented in the trial by Goldman and colleagues. So those more severe patients were not well represented in that trial, those being mechanically ventilated and on ECMO, as well as some of our patient populations who we would be more concerned with a severe, a severe disease course and those being immunocompromised. So you may see um, a 10-day treatment course recommended for those patients. I'd now like to use my remaining time to go into some of the future directions we may see remdesivir heading, looking first at some combination therapies and then ending with some gray areas where we still don't have a lot of information regarding remdesivir's use.
The first combination being that studied in the ACT-2 trial, this was remdesivir and baricitinib versus remdesivir and placebo. The outcomes evaluated were time to recovery and mortality. And the results of the trial have been published, so there was a statistically significant difference seen in time to recovery and no difference seen in mortality. However, I will like to question the clinical significance of that benefit seen in time to recovery for seven versus eight days, um, not a huge clinical significance with baricitinib combination therapy. There's also the ACT-3 trial that is currently ongoing. And this is evaluating the combination of remdesivir with interferon beta versus remdesivir and placebo. The primary outcome studied is time to recovery, and this is targeting patients with a baseline ordinal score of four, five, or six on that same severity score that was used in the ACT-1 criteria. So our patients in the middle still requiring some supplemental oxygen, but have not progressed to ventilation or ECMO. Secondary outcomes evaluated are duration of hospitalization and mortality assessed at days 14 and 28. And these, this trial is currently ongoing. The results have not been published yet, but we are anticipating their results. Now, finally, there are many questions that come up every single day surrounding remdesivir's use, which can be quite frustrating as a practitioner. And I've just listed a few of them here, and hopefully we will get some guidance in these areas. However, we just do not have the guidance at this time. Some unanswered questions are what to do when patients are ventilated. This is obvious that there's not an agreement between our guiding bodies on what to do. There are also differing recommendations in this area, depending on which Mayo site you are at and what they would recommend. Um, so really not fully fleshed out on what we should be doing in these patients. To throw a wrench in it, what do we do when patients are not ventilated and started on remdesivir and then progress to ventilation? We're not sure really what to do with remdesivir at that point. Does remdesivir have a favorable cost-benefit analysis with the benefits that we're seeing? Is there an optimal time of initiation for remdesivir? Is there a certain window that we should be shooting for? And do patients ever get out of that window where we should not be starting remdesivir? And then finally, we know that SARS-CoV-2 is evolving and we're seeing the emergence of new strains. Should we apply the same efficacy information that we have with the older strains to the newer strains? We're not sure if we can translate that same data across the board. This brings me to my final assessment question, which is which patient would be the best candidate for remdesivir based on ACT-1 criteria? So A, allogenic bone marrow transplant recipients, B, patients who are asymptomatic and in the outpatient setting, C, those requiring oxygen via nasal cannula with a saturation of 95%, or D, those with an increased shortness of breath and an oxygen saturation of 95%. All right, so going back to that ACT-1 inclusion criteria and who would be best represented out of these four potential patients. So A, allogenic bone marrow transplant recipients, these were not well represented in the ACT-1 trial, so not the best candidates based on that criteria. B, patients who are asymptomatic and outpatient. So ACT-1 evaluated patients who were symptomatic and who were hospitalized, so not great on both accounts. 
see those requiring oxygen via nasal cannula, but an oxygen saturation of 95%. This would be the correct answer. Even though their oxygen saturation looks great, they are still requiring oxygen. And then D, increased shortness of breath with a saturation of 95%. This would be incorrect. While they are symptomatic with the shortness of breath, their oxygen requirement has not dipped past the threshold for Act 1, which was 94%. Okay, to wrap everything up, Remdesivir inhibits RNA-dependent RNA polymerase and prevents viral replication at this point. Particularly in patients requiring low-flow oxygen, remdesivir has shown to improve time to clinical recovery. And then finally, there are still many gray areas and many unanswered questions left to be explored that we are figuring out and working towards every day. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.